Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor, Chief Executive of the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's event, the latest in our Living Change season. This is where we're sharing our platform with the practitioners, policymakers, problem solvers, who have in common that they're looking for new ways to make change happen or to understand how change happens. And on that subject, it's great to have a chance to talk to today's guest, a good friend of the RSA, Cass Sunstein. Cass is one of the world's leading legal scholars, a Harvard professor, former White House administrator, co-author of one of the classic texts of modern behavioral science, Nudge. There are few academic or policy thinkers who've been more influential on, in our understanding of how change happens at both individual and societal levels. Cass joins us today to mark the publication of his latest book, This Is Not Normal, which examines how our shifting sense of what is normal defines the character of democracy. So we really couldn't have a more expert guide to turn to as we begin to think about creating a new and better normal, perhaps in the wake of the pandemic, and think about the radical social and political movements that we've seen over the last year and, and the years before that indeed. So thank you for joining us, Cass. Welcome back to the RSA stage. Uh, thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure. And it's very nice to see you. Um, look, I've been reading the book this week, Cass, and I, and I really enjoyed it. But, you know, I, I had this kind of sense about the book. It's almost as if you're leading us into a maze and then offering us ways out of the maze. But you don't want to make it too easy for us. There's a kind of sense in which you have to read the book and piece together the ways in which you're taking us into the maze and the ways in which you're suggesting to us different kinds of routes out of it. What, what led you to, to, to produce a book like this, which has this kind of quality of, of, of encouraging the reader to have to make the connections? There are two things that got me going on this. Uh, the first is uh, a couple of books on the rise of Nazism in Germany, um, one of which was a kind of retrospective by uh, a journalist, not German, except by ancestry, who went back in the 1950s to ask, how did it happen? And what he did was not to interview great leaders, uh, great, you know, in a sense of large rather than great in the sense of wonderful, but instead to or interview ordinary citizens to think how did change of that sort happen in Germany. And the other book was written by a um, German citizen who was a young man at the time who lived through it and found it um, a kind of surreal nightmare world. And this gave a sense, these two books in concert, of how very large scale change happens in real time with a kind of personal immediacy that historical works rarely offer. So that was the first, books on the rise of uh, Hitler. And the second was a tiny, tiny paper about perception. And the idea is if you see a lot of things that are really, really blue, and then you see some things that are kind of blue, kind of purple, the things that are kind of blue, kind of purple really aren't blue because you saw other things that are really, really blue. But then as the percentage of things you're seeing that are really, really blue gets smaller, the things that you formerly saw as purple start to think, you start to think, oh, that, that really is blue. And this on perception, this tiny paper on perception has a concept which is prevalence-induced concept change. That's not a very lovely phrase, though it's a very lovely paper. 
The idea is whether something is blue, whether something is ugly, whether something is angry, whether something is ethical, whether something is tolerable, is induced by what's prevalent. And this, these two things, a social science paper that's tiny and two tomes on the rise of Hitler, are really about the same thing. And to think about the power of what's normal and the power of the phrase, this is not normal, that got me inspired and uh, highly energized. And to try to illustrate the thesis through declarative sentences and abstractions seemed to me would be a little desiccated and a little, um, what's the right word, too formal for the liveness of life. And so what I decided to do instead is, okay, what uh, is radicalism about? And when does it work and when does it fail? What's Anne Rand's great success, at least in some parts of the world, she was a very passionate, let's say, thinker about liberty who's had uh, acolytes all over the world. How did that happen? How did the American constitution arise? Uh, how did hashtag me too more recently arise? And to illustrate them by uh, something approaching as best I could, uh, uh, non nonfiction fiction, meaning tales, seemed to me a more evocative way of getting at the topic than a lot of nouns and, and a lot of abstractions. Yeah, and as you say, the book takes us on this kind of tour of the American Constitution, the bizarre writings and life of Ayn Rand, um, pen pictures of different types of radicals. And in that chapter, the chapter looking at, at a number of different people who've, who've adopted different strategies to change. One of the things you're trying to do here, I think, is to rehabilitate technocratic change. You're trying to say technocratic change, change based on science and research and discourse and it can be as powerful, and over the long term, actually, it's it's more powerful. But as you recognize yourself, you're sailing slightly into the wind in making that argument. Yes, and gosh, what I wrote it was I sailing into the wind. So I wrote it before COVID-19. I actually finished it while I had COVID-19. Uh, that was an irony, and it makes it so that some of the sentences in the book I actually don't remember writing because I was under the spell of COVID-19. But when I wrote it, which was, you know, a little before COVID-19 broke, when I wrote this chapter, uh, I was thinking about radicalism of all kinds, including radicalism that's very much with us today. And 100 years ago, there were kind of ideal types of these, these kinds of radicals, identitarians who think of you know, the, the big social problem as oppression on the basis of group identity and the big social solution in a way as recognition of the individual dignity of people notwithstanding their identity, or that's not even the right word, maybe because of their identity, or there's another formulation that's better and the thinker I discuss in the chapter has the better formulations. Then there's the radicals who are Manichaeans who think that the world is, consists of 
uh, the forces of dark and the forces of light. And this can be mapped onto all sorts of different kinds of radicalism. Left-wing versions are the ones that most keenly interest me. The, the, the Manichaeans are often charismatic. They are swashbuckling. They are really good looking frequently. Um, and in some sense, even if it's not physical, it is a kind of dashingness. And uh, this is seductive and uh, I think not a good path. Um, the radicals who emerge as heroes are those who reject the caste-like features of societies, who think of not identity as defining, but as human dignity as defining. And the basic idea here is that if people are systematically subordinated based on some characteristic gender, walking capacity, uh, skin color, then uh, Houston, we have a problem. Uh, but the technocrats emerge with the, uh, let's say, dignitarians as the heroes of the chapter. And this does sail against the wind. You're completely right. Um, the basic idea is that if you have a problem, let's call it climate change, or another problem, let's call it unequal opportunity, you need people who are really good at figuring out what to do about that. And while climate change is much more technical than unequal opportunity, once you get into the guts of what to do about unequal opportunity, uh, you better get people who are experts. And if we've learned anything, I think, with COVID-19, this does sail a little bit against the wind, I recognize also, uh, it's that experts are essential. They're not infallible. They may differ. Uh, they may go in terrible directions, uh, but we are lost almost literally without them. And the, the large problems that societies face today, whether it's deaths on the highway or opioid addiction or climate change, of course, or pandemics, we need to place a very um, high premium on getting the technocrats in place and listening pretty carefully to them. So one of the marks of, of, of a great book, Cass, is that you, you want to put it down and ring the author and have an argument with him, you know, uh, or her as, as, you're, as you're going through it. And there were a couple of points where I kind of, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted immediately to, to, to talk to you about it and, and to, to, to challenge you in a sense. And this, or, or not so much to challenge you, but to ask you whether there's another way of thinking about some of these issues. So. In defending technocracy, something that I've become a bit obsessed with, Cass, is the failure of social sciences um, overall. You know, we, we live in a world where science and technology uh, is, you know, shooting ahead and changing our world quite dramatically, whereas social science, particularly social science in the academy, now there's a difference between social scientists who work in government on practical issues and the academy, but social scientists in the academy seem to be almost incapable of making any kind of collective progress at all. And when you think of the disciplines, for example, and it, it may be different in the States, but, you know, you have psychology that's become dominated by social psychology, which has an enormous problem with replication and generates all sorts of findings. But, 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 but the reliability is, is problematic. You've got economics, which kind of went down the kind of highly mathematical you know, neoclassical route that became utterly dominant with all the problems about what it actually says about human behavior, which you wrote about in Nudge and other places. And then you have sociology, which within the academy has turned into a kind of find the oppressor. You know, that all sociological writing is about finding out who is, it all has to be based on the idea that society is fundamentally a set of oppressive institutions. It's really just a matter of identifying who is the oppressor and how are they oppressing. 
so I've kind of come to the view that social science's inability to, to, to find any kind of common ground across its core disciplines is one of the reasons why it's one of the elements of why technocracy, social scientific technocracy, has had such a hard time. Do you think that's a completely crazy idea? I, I love the idea of the term, find the oppressor. I think that's brilliant. I hadn't heard it before. Thank you for that. There should be a game called find the oppressor where you, you know, it's, it's actually that one. And who knew that that's the oppressor? Um, so I, I agree that find the oppressor isn't a very productive academic game, though it gives often the uh, people who are playing the game a sense of what is it, um, uh, virtue and uh, construct, constructiveness. So, so that's, that's, not, that's not the best. Uh, I have a different view of the social sciences. Uh, every Monday, the National Bureau of Economic Research uh, releases its new working papers. And uh, I confess for me, every Monday is to that extent, it's a little pathetic, but to that extent it's Christmas. Uh, there's a bunch of papers, you know, 10 would be a small number, 20 would be a lot. And you look them up and there's a paper or five from which you're gonna learn something new and really important. What you might learn, for example, um, is that if you automatically enroll people in green energy, and this could be households or businesses, and this is a recent academic paper by economists um, in uh, Switzerland, the incidence of usage of green energy increases very dramatically, even for large companies, even when green energy is more expensive. And this is a massively important empirical finding. It fits with some other empirical findings that are experimental and, and one set of findings from the real world in Germany. And this is, this is a, a terrific paper. Or you may find a paper, and this is an actual paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research. We'll get to psychology and sociology in a moment, uh, which finds that if you give people a little money from, for bringing their own bag to the convenience stores, Tell them, you bring your own bag, you don't ask for ours, we'll give you a little money. That has no effect. The incidence of pay plastic use doesn't change at all. But if you ask them to pay a very small fee for the use of a bag, basically a nominal fee, then the incidence of plastic bags decreases quite dramatically. And the fee is, is nominal. That's, that's a finding that is replete with policy implications. It also tells us something about economic behavior and the human mind. It's, it's a dynamite paper. Yeah, and it's a policy cast, by the way, that we have in the UK and it's been successful. So, yeah. Yes, so the, the paper has had policy influence, and uh, I'm not sure whether the policy of the UK comes from that paper, but it comes from work of that kind. And this paper nails the data. And I've given two that I particularly like that are relatively recent, but I could give uh, 400. And the number of papers that have this quality and this precision is far higher today than at any time in human history. And it, the paper might come from Italy, it might come from Germany, it might come from France, it could come from Canada, it comes from anywhere. People are doing amazing work in economics. In psychology, the big breakthrough through, in my view, uh, came from Daniel Kahneman and Anna Starsky in the 1970s, who launched work on uh, not social psychology, cognitive psychology, on heuristics and biases, uh, so that when we assess risk, often we don't run statistics, 
that finding is not itself particularly remarkable, but we rely on identifiable mental shortcuts that drive our judgments in, in some cases toward excessive fear and excessive uh, complacency. And this helps explain actually the failure to anticipate the pandemic because the human mind doesn't think pandemic, 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 except when it's too late. And it also helps explain the overreaction in some cases to some risks that are actually really small. And th that's worked from the 1970s. But if you look at what's happening now, it's just much more sophisticated. It involves not students, but very large populations. It's often testing how people respond to risks. Um, um, and there's an outpouring, not shockingly, of work on um, uh, the pandemic that is uh, psychological in nature. I'm chairing a, a technical advisory group at the World Health Organization on uh, behavioral science and public health. And we recently released a report on vaccine uh, take up and acceptance that is um, uh, a summary, uh, not original. It's a summary of the last uh, two decades or so of research on vaccine uptake. And that work in psychology is exceptionally good. It's very powerful. It involves, in some cases, surveys, in many cases, real world behavior. And it would be uh, extremely unfortunate to go back 25 years and to try to build up um, understandings from, from scratch. In psychology, we're seeing uh, more and better work on how collectives uh, end up uh, judging and acting uh, about the power of interactions that has a social psycho psychological dimension. Uh, it's true that the replication crisis, as it's called, is uh, um, what's the most cautious word, is a reason to take a deep breath and to um, engage in very serious self-scrutiny. Some of the work just doesn't replicate. But the Kahneman diversity stuff, um, which is the defining work in uh, the academic worlds in which I live, uh, has replicated big time over and over and over and over again. There are a few pinpricks, but basically it, it works. And the essential findings in behavioral economics, they have replicated. And to the extent that you find problems with replication, that's how science advances. So that's a good thing. Often in physics, you find that something wasn't quite right. And if you do the right study, you, you didn't have the right theory. Uh, in sociology, uh, I have um, uh, uh, anything but expertise. I'll tell you a form of sociology that I really like. It's called analytical sociology. And it tries to specify mechanisms by which, for example, alcoholism breaks out in certain times or places. Or why is it that we find a very significant increase in seatbelt usage? And what it tries to specify, is there a mechanism which might be uh, psychological in nature? It might be certain interactions happen exactly the right time. Uh, Duncan Watts, as a sociologist, has done spectacular work on mechanisms that uh, lead to unpredictability and variance in uh, culture. So why is it that you can't predict whether a new song by an unknown artist will 
uh, go to the top or, or crash and burn. And that has implications for uh, literature, it has implications for cinema, and it certainly has implications for ideas in general. Where so Cass, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off only to say you've disproved my generalization. I think I think what I'm getting is that if one focuses on empirical social science, there's a lot of richness there. There may be some problems about the conceptual level, but but anyway, I, I'm 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 thoroughly convinced. Let let me let me take another point which which sprung to mind when I was reading the book, which was. A few years ago, I interviewed Francis Fukuyama, and we were talking about the distinction between 1968. This is an interview we did in 2018. So we look back 50 years. And Francis said that if you look back to 68, there were as many, there was as much polar, apparent polarization, as much discord, in fact, more in some ways, there was more violence actually than in 2018, but yet it didn't feel like America could fall apart. And his view was that the issue was not the level of radicalism or protest, it was what held people together. That in 1968, there was still a lot more that held people together. But by 2018, for a variety of reasons, there is less that holds us together. And therefore, these kind of fissurous forces driving us out of the normal um, are stronger. Do you, do you think that's right? And overall, are homogeneous or diverse societies more resilient do you think? I was a young professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, one of my mentors and adversaries was Gary Becker, an economist of great distinction. And when I would venture propositions, he would look at me quizzically, not with hostility, but genuine puzzlement and say, how would we test that? <laughs> and I've never forgotten his frequent resort to that question. So uh, whether there's less that's holding us together in the United States now, let's say, than in 1968, or whether the risk of some kind of disintegration is higher now because of something that's happened, I hear Becker's voice in my head saying, how would we test that? And uh, I, I'm very wary uh, because of Becker of, of being impressionistic here. So uh, I'll say a few things about 1968 and a few things about now in the United States. Uh, so in 1968, there was discord that was generational and racial that was profoundly destabilizing. And uh, the, the perception was that the level of rage uh, across relevant lines was such that violence was not only present, but likely to get a lot worse. And President Nixon's success had something in significant part to do with that perceived risk. Um, what we have had now in the United States, and this is going to be impressionistic, notwithstanding Becker's caution, well, my dogs are uh, enthusiastic for being impressionistic, evidently. Uh, what, what we observe now has uh, something more insidious, which is a less of a shared sense of factual reality, where it's not as if some people think that the valuation of, let's say, war or a cultural institution is different than it should be. That is, we like it, we shouldn't. But people disagree about fact, fact, 
essential facts more. And that is identifiably associated with political position. And Hannah Arendt, a long time before the last few years, was on to this problem. So it's, it's not new. But in the United States, in part because of the rise of social media, in part because of the spectacular in sense of magnitude uh, intensification of party identification as a cue to who you are and what you like. In the 1960s, if, if you were asked, what would you think if your uh, child married someone of a different political party, people would think, what kind of question is that? It's fine. But now 40 to 50% of people say, I, I, I would really hate that. I don't want my child marrying someone of a different political party. And that dramatic increase in affective polarization, as it's called, maps on too well to a belief about what actually happened in the election or in the COVID crisis. That, that is dangerous. If one's looking at the challenge facing the, the, the Biden administration, I just want, want you to kind of tell me what you think the lessons of history might be between a view that says what is necessary now is simply to pull the nation together and to avoid things which will be controversial with a view that says there are things that aren't right about the American constitution, about the American system, and they need to be addressed because if they're not addressed, they will continue, whether it's campaign finance or gerrymandering or whatever else. What does history tell us is, 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 is the most important thing to do when you're in a situation of fracturing and a sense of the danger of polarization? Is it simply to hold people together until they're more ready for change? Or is it to be bolder and to grab the opportunity to reconstitute things? There's quite a lot in your book about this question. And in the end, you kind of think it's the strength of the American Constitution that it's so hard to change. Well, since the book was uh, written, I've actually joined the Biden administration. So I'm working for President Biden now. I'm here to speak in terms of the book, not in terms of my uh, official role, but I will say a few words. Uh, what my, my boss, President Biden, has uh, done successfully in early days is to uh, rub no salt in any wound. So his uh, approach, which is consistent with his nature, is to be uh, respectful and um, empathetic. I think that's a, a little bit of an overused word, but for President Biden, it's just as part of his core, uh, with respect to people who think all sorts of different things and to characterize people who think differently from how he thinks as something and then take some adjective that's unkind. That's just not how he, how he is. It's not how he thinks. He has strong disagreements, but he thinks of people as people. And as a senator got along with everybody, it's really hard to dislike Joe Biden. Everybody likes Joe Biden. He's a great guy. And that way of acting in the world is how he's acting as president. So to, to gin up rage at him, uh, people who are trying to do that are really struggling. They could do it with Obama for multiple reasons, one of which was his skin color. They could do it with Clinton, sure. And on the other side, uh, Democrats have succeeded. Of any political figure we've had, I think, you know, in 
the last 50 years, 70 years, 100 years, ever. Uh, Biden is the one just by his nature who, who he, he's low key in the sense of turning up ideological heat on people because of their convictions. He's not low key in terms of turning up uh, idea heat on people because of what he thinks would be a good thing to do. So let, let me go there now. Uh, with respect to the uh, economic situation and the pandemic, he's been focused like a laser and he hasn't been incremental. So the stimulus package, which has uh, been enacted is extremely bold and dramatic. There's a lot of money there. And much of it is de dedicated to helping people who are really struggling. And with respect to kids in poverty and people with young kids who are in poverty, this is this has as just part of that, maybe the most dramatic economic reform the country's ever had with respect to children in poverty and young parents in poverty. And he did that not by accusing anybody of anything, but by some version of, come on, man, that's his, that's what he said frequently. It's, it's part of his nature when he's unhappy with a direction, a conversation, or a nation is going, he says, come on, man. And uh, that's uh, a way of, it's, it's, it has a little ebullience in it and it has uh, leadership in it and it doesn't have rage in it. It has, come on, let's do something. And he succeeded. And he succeeded against uh, Republicans, his, his people who are his friends saying, let's go much, much smaller here and then we'll be with you. And he said, you know, we're not gonna go much smaller. Look where the country is. Um, and he wouldn't want to sacrifice that ability he's got by grasping, because you recognize yourself in the book, you, you as I say, you, you, you argue that in the end it's a strength that the American constitution is so hard to change, but that there are problems around campaign finance, for example, around uh, gerrymandering, where there is an argument for saying, and I want to take this to a different place as well, Cass, the, the democracy, one of the things that's often said about democracy is it's like a bicycle. If it's not going forward, it, it starts to totter. And in many ways, and we have the same problem here in, 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 in the UK, our democratic institutions haven't sufficiently adapted to the challenges of, of the modern world. Do you think there's a need, whether or not it is for President Biden to do, is there a need for democratic and constitutional renewal in America? I think so. And you could think of it along various different dimensions. You could think of renewal as a kind of cultural phenomenon of the sort that President Kennedy actually spurred with the Peace Corps and a sense of engagement with government by people with energy and who are either young or young at heart. And Kennedy really did that. I think there's a chance that President Biden's going to do that also. There's been a, a burst of idealism, um, which it might the issue might involve climate change, it might involve racial equality, it might involve poverty, it might involve education, uh, it could involve uh, entrepreneurship, and it, we've seen that uh, spurting in in the last months, and that is a kind of democratic renewal of the small d. Then there are institutions that have been uh, functioning less well, less well, let's say, than they ought to. 
uh, state and local government, often they just haven't had the resources or they've been a little uh, calcified, maybe more than a little calcified. If you think of institutions that are regulating any number of things, take your pick. Um, some of them in the last years under President Trump, but I think plausibly in the view of others in for a longer period than that, have had less uh, nimbleness and less um, uh, problem-solving capacity than would be ideal. I'll, I'll give you just a number and, and think of this as exemplary rather than as the, what most ails us. The number is uh, 11 billion, and that's the number of hours in paperwork burdens that the United States government imposes on the American people. Pause over that, if you would, 11 billion. And that means that if a truck driver is trying to do her his job, the amount of time devoted to paperwork might not be small. If there's a nurse trying to deal with patients, it might be that the week is occupied a lot with paperwork. It might be a university uh, administrator who's trying to help kids who don't have a lot of money and the first generation in college. Uh, that administrator is spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to fill out forms. The take-up rate for many programs that could change people's lives is in 40 to 40 to 60% which means I'm an English major, not a math major, but 40 to 60% of people aren't benefiting from some program that could make a massive bit difference to them. And, and this is, take this as both a, frequently a tragedy in itself, and also a clue about the need for some kind of democratic renewal, where a hard look is taken at this sludge, and uh, there's something done so that People can get the benefits to which they're entitled, and then their lives will turn around. Cassie, we're running out of time, so I've just got two last questions for you before, before we wind up. And the, the first is, uh, I associate you with a critical view of one particular democratic reform that we're very keen on about in the RSA, and which actually both the US and the UK now lags most of the rest of the world, and that's the use of deliberation. Now, you've been... You've demonstrated in your work that if you have deliberation amongst people who already agree, they will become more extreme as that process. But the forms of deliberation I'm talking about are ones where you use proper methods to select a cross-section of the public. And this can be a way of bringing citizens into the decision-making process and also sometimes a way of legitimating tough decisions because politicians say, well, look, this is what people like you, these are the conclusions they came to when they could see the facts. And finally... The other great thing about deliberation is that whilst representative democracy is often quite ugly because it involves people shouting to each other and, and, and being performative, deliberative democracy is rather beautiful. Ordinary people sitting around a table from different backgrounds trying to work out something and, 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 and being delighted when sometimes they change their mind. Can I just clarify, Cass, although you are sometimes associated with research which demonstrates the problems of deliberation, that actually properly structured representative deliberation is not something you're, you're opposed to. And would you like to see more of it? Completely. So I uh, am a card-carrying deliberative Democrat. So that strand of democratic theory, which Jürgen Habermas and in a different way, James Fishkin are embrace. I, I, that's a club I uh, am thrilled to aspire to be a member of. 
So a democracy that puts a premium on both accountability and deliberation is the best form. Uh, if you have a democracy that's non-deliberative, uh, big problems. And if you have a deliberative process that's non-democratic, uh, also big, though differently big problems. Uh, I agree with every word you said, uh, a well-structured uh, deliberative process that is broadly representative can often produce creative and novel solutions to problems. And it, it, all, is it, it is also legitimating both in the sociological sense and in the normative sense. Um, I saw in the US government, when I worked for President Obama, I saw close up deliberative democracy often working where different people would get together either physically or on paper, they'd be exchanging views on paper and something would emerge that would be unheard of until the moment when they started to talk to each other. Uh, so we need much more of that. Um, I did some work on what happens if like-minded people talk to each other. They often end up thinking a more extreme version of what they thought before they started to talk, and that's a problem. But that isn't an objection to the deliberative democracy. It's a notation about how to constitute it. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So last question, Cass, and this is a risky question, and it's also unfair. So I, I want to share with you the way the RSA thinks about change and, and just get your sense of whether or not you think it it has anything to it we encourage a method which we describe as thinking like a system and acting like an entrepreneur so what i mean by that is when we think about change trying to understand change as a as a as a, as a feature of systems and that if you want something significant to change it won't be about just changing one variable it'll be that whole system needs to change but that the way you get from here to there is through a very kind of agile, adaptive, entrepreneurial way, because actually it's very difficult to predict how change will, will, will kind of unfold. Just, just this notion of thinking systemically and acting entrepreneurially, as, as someone who's been involved and written about change so much, does it strike a chord for you? It does. Uh, one part I underline is that often if you pull at one strand, or if you introduce one thing, a uh, very large movement can happen, and that's hard to anticipate. So if you create a little institution that has a responsibility for X, it might be the institution is small, will turn out to be small but mighty, and something very significant will alter. Or to give an example we discussed before, if you introduce a small charge for uh, using plastic and convenience stores, plastic bags and convenience stores, you can have a massive effect. So the, the idea that thinking in terms of systems, that's essential because often one piece is interacting with other pieces such that a small change will actually have no effect because other parts will adjust or a small change will have massive effects because other parts will change too accordingly. Uh, both of those are important. Um, probably it's the case that what kind of small tug introduces no change and what introduces a large change can be uh, and predicted would be too strong, but anticipated not badly once you understand how the pieces fit together. Yeah, and one of the other messages of the book, Cast is is um, what I remember, I think David Runciman once saying, which is that any analysis of history teaches us 
always that we should both understand that everything is determined and everything is contingent. Um, and you, uh, there's a chapter on counterfactual history where you make exactly that kind of argument. We just have to hold these two ideas in our head at the same time. Yes, and what, what I'd emphasize is, in retrospect, the human mind is uh, infinitely creative in demonstrating inevitability and determination by producing after-the-fact stories that are profoundly satisfying. Uh, beware of that. Before the fact, predictability is extremely elusive. And uh, what we often do is blame ourselves for failures of foresight when the real problem is the nature of the beast. So the lesson to be drawn from the failure of foresight is, oh, how could we have been so stupid? But instead that you know, the world has a lot of stuff in it and uh, even a really good algorithm can't tell us in advance how it's all going to fall out once the interactions are coming. Great. Well, thank you, Cass. And I'll just tell you, I, I suspect you don't have a great deal in common with Noam Chomsky, but let me tell you that when I was interviewing him a few months ago, his dog barked in the background. So now you have something in common with Chomsky, which is a, uh, which is a noisy dog that interrupts you occasionally. That was wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. I highly recommend everyone read This Is Not Normal. It's one of those books that that takes you on a journey, but is also full of little nuggets that you want to share with other people. You'll find links to the book in the chat bar and on the RSA website. The RSA Living Change campaign is running throughout March and April. So do check our website and social media channels regularly to find out what's in store in the weeks ahead. And if you'd like to get in touch, let us know about change you've been involved in, tweet us using the hashtag RSA change. So thank you again, Cass, for joining us today. And thank you all for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.